This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We are in chapter nine of Jane Eyre now. This is the chapter where things get better at Lowood. Firstly, it's spring, so the ground and the kids' feet thaw. Also, the kids start to get more time to play and more food. But more food and more free time is because typhus is running through the school like a plague, killing around one-third of its inmates and keeping the teachers busy as nurses. There is quite literally more food for each mouth because there are fewer mouths. Also, Brocklehurst won't come near the school for fear of getting sick, so no one is checking if the girls get an extra piece of bread. Jane is thriving, healthy, making friends, planting a small garden herself, learning, as funerals with little caskets happen in the background of her life. It is on a particularly beautiful day that Jane thinks to herself, the world is pleasant and it would be dreary to be called from it and have to go who knows where. Suddenly it occurs to her, death is bad. And it is then, with a pang, that Jane realizes Helen Burns, the first friend she had at Lowood, the girl who she admired so much, is dying. And that sucks. And Jane realizes that it doesn't just suck for her. It isn't just awful because she'll miss Helen. It sucks for Helen. Jane, late at night, sneaks by the typhus room, where most of the girls are dying, and goes to Miss Temple's room, where Helen is dying separately from tuberculosis. Miss Temple is off taking care of another dying child, and so Helen is alone. Jane crawls into bed with Helen. It is a death scene of tremendous care. Jane, your little feet are bare. Lie down and cover yourself with my quilt. Jane asks if heaven is real, and Helen tells Jane, There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day, and the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle and gradual. My mind is at rest. And yes, heaven is real. Helen then says, By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. Jane falls asleep with her arms around Helen's neck, and that is how Helen dies. 
Helen's grave is at Brocklebridge Churchyard. Her father does not claim her body, and it was unmarked for 15 years until it gets marked with the Latin for I shall rise again. Here is Deborah Letts, professor of English at the University of Louisville and the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Jane Eyre on Helen Burns. You know, her name is a complete sentence, Helen Burns, period, which I kind of love because there's a way that she is so radiant. You know, she burns. She burns with this kind of passion and she's described as being illuminated at least once in the book when she's talking, I think, to to Miss Temple, which Jane sort of picks up and consumes and, and takes with her on her continued journey even after Helen dies. I mean, there is a sense that Helen um, will, ret- will return, right? She, her, her gravestone says something like, I will return, which of course means, I suppose, that the soul will enter the afterlife. I mean, it's supposed to be a religious idea, right? But I think that in the book, it, it does feel like Jane incorporates some of Helen's burning and other qualities into herself. And then she moves forward along her Bildungsroman, having taken some really important ideas uh, from Helen. In chapter 10, Destiny comes for Jane. Destiny's name is Reverend Mr. Naismith, and what he does is marry Miss Temple. This chapter sums up Jane's eight remaining years at Lowood. She becomes first in her class and ends up as a teacher there. She is happy and finds great company in Miss Temple. And then when destiny comes, Jane suddenly doesn't want to be at Lowood anymore. It turns out that what made Lowood great just became Mrs. Naismith and is gone. Jane decides it's time for her to leave Lowood. Here is Claudia Nelson, English professor at Texas A&M and author of the book Family Ties in Victorian England on Lowood's importance. To have parents is to have a place in society. You know who you are, and everybody else knows who you are, too. And that's great, and you can certainly write books about people with parents, but it also works really well to write books about people who don't have a place who are kind of trying to find their place. So uh, you think of someone like Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair. It's important that she's an orphan because... Nobody is supervising her, and she can go out and do whatever she finds herself capable of doing, uh, and she is not troubled by any moral scruples or anything inconvenient like that. And Jane Eyre is another kind of example. She is obviously a much more moral person than Becky Sharp is, but we have to get her a place. And it doesn't work at first, of course, for her to be with her aunt by marriage, and her cousins. This is not a sympathetic family. This is not the place where she belongs. And then she goes to Lowood, and that kind of turns her into the sort of person who can find a place in society. So it's it's a really important transitional place. As Professor Nelson is saying, Lowood was always designed to be an in-between place a place for between when Jane would have had parents and when she'd be able to go out into the world on her own. Lowood goes from home to trap in one day. 
it takes Jane one night of pacing to figure out what she must do now. In her words, she must find another kind of servitude. She knows that another servitude is the right answer because, as she says, it doesn't sound too sweet. So she advertises herself as a governess. One woman writes back, a Mrs. Fairfax. Mrs. Reed is written to for permission for Jane to leave Lowood and responds, I don't care what the fuck Jane does with her life as long as she doesn't come back here. Jane gets references from her school and everything is arranged in about six weeks. Jane is packed and ready to go the next morning when she gets called downstairs. A woman and a little boy are there. Don't you recognize me? The woman asks. Bessie heard from Mrs. Reed that Jane is leaving the county and so comes to take a look at Jane before she's out of reach. It's a lovely reunion full of kisses, compliments, updates, and gossip. Bessie and Jane kiss goodbye, and Jane heads off to her new life at Milkit. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. So, Lauren, what do you think that people need to know as we jump into chapters 9 and 10? People need to know that this was not something that was merely affecting Lowood, this health epidemic. This was part of a catastrophe of massive proportions in Victorian England. There were waves of contagious disease, first of influenza, then of cholera, and then typhus and typhoid hit England. And they specifically hit poor England because wealthier England, landed England, had fresh air and cleaner water and space to be apart from each other. You know, we, of course, understand social distancing in totally new ways in our current era. That was, of course, just as important then when it was a question of keeping each other safe from airborne epidemics like tuberculosis for waterborne epidemics, of which there were many of these, typhoid among them, or body-to-body lice-borne epidemics like typhus. These were also major concerns for people who were poorer in England. And there was a man named Edwin Chadwick who did a big report of the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain which showed that in 1839, for every person who died of old age or violence, he notes, eight died of specific diseases. And nearly one infant in three failed to reach the age of five. So this is in part because poor people were so hungry, their immune systems were so weak that they were very unresistant to contagion. His report was quite controversial, but It eventually yielded the Public Health Act of 1848. It's like the dawn of public health in Britain. And it's what was known as the Great Sanitary Awakening. With it came this notion that protecting public health was an actual social responsibility. I think it is worth noting that Helen Burns, as you mentioned, dies of tuberculosis, which, of course, was also known as consumption. That is what Mariah Bronte and Elizabeth Bronte, Jane's older sisters, died from at ages 11 and 10, just six weeks apart. 
typhus was a bigger deal at the time than consumption. And so, of course, it was important for Charlotte to have Helen die from TB, as her sister Mariah does. They are parallels, as we've discussed. But it's really typhus, which at the time is a much larger deal and a much larger public health crisis. And so this is her opportunity to write what fits into the social problem novel, the you know narrative creed occur that can yield public policy, much like Dickens did. And of course, this did coincide with what was happening in the country at the time. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is the extent to which the sanitation movement corresponds just after the Age of Enlightenment, right? So there's simultaneously this like questioning of God and this desire for reason. And so suddenly we can philosophically wrap our minds around the fact that we can intervene in God's will by being sanitary, right? And so it's just fascinating the way that all of these ideas are so intertwined. And then in this chapter, they're so intertwined, right? There's poverty of like Helen has been at the school for a while. So she's probably more underfed than someone like Jane, who's come more recently. And there's this conversation about Jane's agnosticism versus Helen's utter faith combined with what we know to be Charlotte's belief in religious hypocrisy and the unnecessary privations of what she and her sisters went through. So I feel like all of these things were intertwined philosophically and quite materially at the time. And they're all in this one little chapter. Absolutely. As we've discussed, you know, this notion of mortifying the body to purify the soul. It turns out that when you mortify the body by failing to feed children, and there's an epidemic unleashed, you kill the children. Right. I mean, Jane tells us that 45 out of 80 kids at Lowood have typhus. That doesn't even include Helen and who knows how many other people have tuberculosis. And it's really extraordinary. I think that this book lays that at Brocklehurst's feet. It lays it at the feet of the church, of the elder of the church, and says we need a secular and scientific response to this crisis. Right. At the end of the chapter, Brocklehurst gets demoted. And it is noted, Jane tells us, that he got demoted, but he was too important to be totally kicked out, right? Like there was too much corruption for Brocklehurst to be totally kicked off of the board of trustees for the school. But a new board with like a more liberal minded sense of how to feed children with reallocated resources, in part because so many children died, right, come in and the kids get better fed and there isn't another epidemic in the eight years that Jane is at the school. The one thing I'm I want to push back on or ask you about is if you really believe that there are other girls dying of tuberculosis in this school, because I think it really is everyone's dying of typhus at Lowood except for sainted Helen, not because it wouldn't be likely that other girls would be dying of tuberculosis at a school this small, but because Helen is supposed to be like a rung above the rest. Part of it is about the fact that she is based on Mariah, you know, the sister who Charlotte worshipped. But also it is this Victorian trope of the sainted child, right? That the pure sainted child who dies 
of this different disease of tuberculosis. And I feel like that to some extent has like stayed in our even like more modern frame of mind that tuberculosis is this disease that you die from by like coughing, you know, in this like very slow, dramatic way, which is given to more beautiful people, right? I'm thinking of like the Nicole Kidman character in Moulin Rouge because typhus is just so gross. And like, obviously tuberculosis is gross too. You're like drowning in your own lungs. But yeah, I'm just wondering if you think that really within the logic of Jane Eyre, there's anyone else dying of TB. Well, within the scientific logic, there is, right? I mean, so they live in this bubble. Statistically. I have no idea how Helen could have gotten TB unless it is carried inside Lowood. But yes, she is the only character who is granted this death. She is sequestered from the other kids in Miss Temple's sacred chamber. She essentially lies in state. It is very reminiscent of how Eva dies in Uncle Tom's cabin. And it was a real Victorian trope of this, you know, this form of you just sort of breathe in the ungodly airs and it kills our finer sort. Whereas, yeah, typhus is flea-borne. I mean, I'm just imagining how revolting those dormitories at Lowood must have been with, you know, these children plagued by rickets. And, of course, Helen is removed from it all. Yeah, she right? Like, she's such a saint, she can't even die of the same disease that the other girls in the school die from, which statistically some of the other girls in the school would have absolutely been dying from. But I think, right, like, we have this scene for our close reading of Jane and Helen in bed. And I, I mean, it starts, right, like the scene really starts, I would argue, with Jane realizing the world is pleasant and it would be dreary to be called from it and to have to go who knows where, right? And that thought, that like, that epiphany, right, is what gets her to go to Helen and is like, oh, poor Helen, I wouldn't want to die. And I I can't imagine Helen would want to die. Okay. So this is a sentence that I think is completely absurd in the context of this chapter. So please talk me into a way of not almost snorting through my nose as I'm reading it. But here is Jane surrounded by grotesque death. And in a religious institution where discussion of hell and heaven and mortality exists everywhere all the time. Then she's saying the world is pleasant. It would be dreary to be called from it. What a drag to die and have to go who knows where. The who knows where, I mean, believe me, the atheist in me is thrilling at the latter part of that sentence. But can you help me understand why I should not just be aghast at her talking about how dreary it would be to die? Yeah, I think that this is the first time she feels that way. I feel like at Gateshead, right? Like she was so miserable. She didn't really think about death. But if somebody was like, you're going to leave this world, she'd be like, great, get me the hell out of here. And she has this friend, Marianne, you know, she derides her relationship with Marianne only in comparison to her like relationship with Sainted Helen. But it actually sounds like a lovely friendship. They like frolic in the woods and Marianne tells her stories and Jane is allowed to analyze the stories like they get along really well. It's one of these early moments that we will see again and again of the power of female friendship in this book. 
like she tells us in earlier chapters, like, I would rather die than be unloved. And now she's loved and so is able to have this epiphany that like, oh, actually, in the springtime with bread and cheese and friendship and love, this world actually can be a pleasant place. Right. And I suppose it's also the first time that she's had anything that resembles a childhood where right. she can play in the woods. She has a playmate who seems age appropriate <laughs> and not this, you know, maudlin dying teenager or her horrible cousins. Right. So she she does have this idyllic childhood for a moment that she's describing to us. And it is set against all of these horrors. And yet it exists. And then, of course, she has a child's response to what it all means when it comes to thinking about her best friend. And I just remember in like elementary school, if something horrible happened to someone who wasn't in my immediate circle, being relieved that I didn't have to be bothered by it. I mean, it's horrific. It's horrific, right? Like there is a whole herb garden that is being grown so that fragrant herbs will be buried with the young so that there isn't the smell of death at the school. Like it is gruesome what is described in this chapter. And maybe I was just like a selfish kid because I could totally believe just like not totally noticing at the time. I feel like Bronte's really playing with that, though. She has that almost paragraph length description of the flowers and it builds and builds and builds. And then at the very end, they're just to be tossed on a coffin. (laughs) I think that the part of this sentence, though, that I I most love, not the part that I roll my eyes at, is this question of after death to have to go who knows where. So she has been lectured and, you know, just pummeled with this notion of where bad girls go when they die and where good girls go when they die, right? It goes all the way back to the drawing room at Gateshead when Brocklehurst thrust the pamphlet in her hand about here's where you go if you're a bad kid like this dead bad kid. Now she's surrounded by these dead kids after being completely indoctrinated in the notions of heaven and hell, and she still doesn't buy it. She's not going to believe what they tell her just because they tell her. She's going to wonder. She's going to question. And I think that this is a real glimmer of the Jane that I most love. Yeah. And you see that still when she's literally in bed with Helen, right? So she crawls into bed with Helen, who is dying, right? Helen tells us, like, I think I'm going to die tonight, essentially. And, you know, she says, Jane, please put your arms around me. And Just like the mutual caretaking in this scene is so touching to me. But one of the things that really strikes me is that Jane keeps asking Helen questions, right? She's like, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? What is heaven like? How are you sure? And then there's this moment where she says, again, I questioned, but this time only in thought, where is this region? Does it exist? She keeps questioning, but she knows that she needs to stop questioning Helen, that this moment is now about Helen and Helen's comfort in her death. And I just think it shows Jane's like brilliance of a caretaker in her atheism. And, you know, and it's it's the thing that makes me disagree with Deborah Lutz and a lot of academics that that Jane is deeply changed by Helen. I think she's deeply changed by this experience with Helen 
And I, I think she loves Helen and is in part changed by Helen, but she never becomes this true believer that Helen embodies. And the other thing is, right, Helen says the opposite of the world is pleasant. She says, I never would have had an easy life. I have no real talents. My dad's married now. He doesn't really care if I live or die anymore. I would have suffered throughout my life. I'm glad I'm dying. And we know from just a couple paragraphs ago that that's not how Jane feels. Jane feels like the world is pleasant. And so I really am unconvinced by this idea that Jane turns into a kind of Helen. Well, I totally agree with you. And I, I'm a real admirer of Deborah Lutz and her book, The Bronte Cabinet. And I know you feel this way, too. It's it's amazing. We should all read it. But I have to say the notion that Helen is burning with passion, it's the opposite of how I feel about Helen. I feel a real coldness from Helen and a real passivity. And there's something about that passivity, which is to me the opposite of both Jane and Miss Temple. They are doers. To me, the place where I find real beauty in what the church can do is in its outreach, in its justice work, in the ways that it can make up for all the failures of our secular world. And to me, this form of faith is one that absents itself. And I think that we see that in Helen's utter lack of joie de vivre, you know. I, I love that she's a reader. I love that she's a thinker. But the notion that she burns with any passion is something that escapes me entirely. The one moment that I really love Helen is when she makes that very, I mean, just like pathetic argument about why it's okay that she's dying. And essentially what she's saying at least how I read it, and I'm curious if you read it the same way, is there's no place for me on this earth. Like my dad doesn't even want me anymore. I'm not excelling at school. If I stay alive, I'm just going to suffer. And so at least this way, I cannot endure that. And like that, I just find that so heartbreaking and astute about the world around her. She's like, I'm not going to make it. It's okay that I'm dying. And in so many ways, those are familiar, depressed teen complaints, right? We, sure. we all know those feelings, but she's having them in a society in which she has no power or agency, where her economic prospects are so limited. Her ability to make a life for herself is so stymied. And as we heard earlier in the episode, one's parenting means everything. And yes, Jane is an orphan, so she has no choice but to go and define the world for herself. But Helen has this father, and this father has now moved on from her and abandoned her. So she's still tethered to this family narrative. And I love this because this is really the first time that Bronte truly talks to us about marriage, right? We have the ghost of the former marriage of the Reeds and of Jane's parents. But this is what a real contemporary marriage means, is that even one's father doesn't care if you die because he's found a new wife. This is what happens when people are lost into this arrangement. And the fact that Helen can feel this so deeply on her deathbed and indeed make it a reason that it's it's impractical for her to even remain living is something that I think that Bronte is telling us that will then be echoed in Miss Temple's disappearance into marriage in the next chapter. 
which I think we can now start talking about, right? It's just so striking to me that she says, she literally says, this is a quote, that destiny came in the form of Miss Temple's husband, that he came and married Miss Temple, and that is the thing that changes Jane's whole life, which again speaks to me about the importance of Miss Temple over Helen in Jane's life, that Jane is at Lowood for eight more years, and she's sort of fine there. She actually thrives there without Helen. But as soon as Miss Temple leaves, she's like, this place is untenable. I cannot live here a moment longer. And there's something about having someone who's close to you taken through death versus someone who's taken through marriage. And this is what we see is that women are ripped away from each other in ways that are intolerable because they need to attach themselves to how their men live and where their men live. And I think, right, like this is where we really can start to trace power. I mean, you were already doing it by saying, right, like Miss Temple eventually has to attach herself to a man or just grow old at Lowood. And she chooses to attach herself to a man. I would maybe argue that her love for Jane is reciprocal and she waits until Jane is old enough for her to leave and like go off. But there isn't a ton of evidence for that in the text other than Jane finds it so unbearable to be there without Miss Temple. But Jane is like, oh, shoot, Miss Temple like has assigned herself to this power of a man. And like now I have to find something else. And the the best she can hope for is a new servitude. So she's like, what can I do? I can become a governess. How do I do that? I can advertise in a paper. So let's back up to that moment where she decides to choose servitude, because this is the pivot in the book. And I know that you have known that this is coming for me, where I go from feeling so conjoined with Jane in my heart as this feeling passionate, questioning young girl and then young woman to the person who says, I'm gasping for liberty. I'm, I want joy. I want experience. And then she says, but you know what? Servitude sounds really great to me. I don't feel like that is what she says. She says that liberty is scattered on the wind, faintly blowing, that like a wind that barely has any gust to it has like taken liberty from her because she's a poor woman. And so she abandons it and frames a humbler supplication. Like, what else do you want her to do? She wants liberty, but she just knows she can't get it and so settles for a better servitude. I just want more of that. I mean, she tells us that she gasps for it, that she prays for it. And then like in a moment, she seems incredibly excited about servitude. It's not that she's settling for it. She's saying, what do I want? I want a new place and a new house amongst new faces under new circumstances. I want it because it is of no use wanting anything better. And of course, this is part of Jane maturing, right, is being able to square her desires with the reality of her circumstances. I respect that. But there is something about missing the eight years in which she's gone from being our passionate, hot-headed Jane to this person who she describes as being this humble, quiet, 
you know, slightly withdrawn, ticking the boxes Jane. And it feels like, how have we missed this transformation? Here we are. You're 18 and I've lost my friend Jane. I've lost her to the schoolroom and I've lost her to Lowood. And now she's too mature for me to have fun with and too mature for me to march with (laughs) and too mature for me to feel like we can stay up all night talking about what we really want in the world because all she wants now is servitude because that's what she thinks she's going to get. It drives me crazy. It just makes me so sad for her. And I think, right, she's even more ambitious than Miss Temple. Miss Temple's only way out of Lowood that she could imagine for herself was marriage. Jane is like, no, I'm going to get another job. So like, she's so radical for her time. And I, I just feel for her with how trapped she feels. And we know, like, she's going to get settled into, you know, her next situation. And within a couple of months, she's going to feel trapped again. But she can't want more. And she's just trying her best to live within the reality of this world. And the world sucks. What do you want her to do, Lauren? (laughs) I want her to do all the same things. I just want her to do it with a heart that feels familiar to me. And part of that is because I didn't get to see her heart change. I didn't get to watch her mature. There are these moments in which Bronte gives us such detail and closely observes these small scenes. And then we jump eight years and she says, okay, reader, I'm not going to bother you with this radical transformation of our heroine here. But I feel like if she had been able to bring us through that transformation, I could maybe feel it in a different way. Why do you think Bronte does that? Why do you think Bronte is like, so the eight more years passed and like the first 10 years of my life, I've given as many chapters. And now I'm going to tell you about eight years and a paragraph. Here we go. I did great in school in Miss Temple and I were close. Scene. Why? Why does she not think that that's interesting? Well, I think it's worth remembering that Bronte wrote the first half of this book in a fever, right? It was just pouring out of her. It's not like she was storyboarding this and writing draft after draft and letting go of huge sections, at least that we know of, right? She was sitting in a waiting room and her hand was flying across the page for weeks. And this is what we've got. I also think that she knows she needs to get us to Rochester. She knows that we've had like like the big founding myth of Jane. We've had her orphanhood. We've had her abuse. We've had her move into the transitional place of Lowood. We've dealt with now the public health crisis and her crisis of faith, not that she had the faith to begin with. And now things need to move on. What do you think? I guess I think she doesn't change that much. Mm. (laughs) Like, I believe her, right? Like, she says, I like, I became a little more mild tempered, but like, I stayed the same. And like, we are going to see, you know, that first line of chapter two, which I think you and I both think is maybe one of the theses of this book. I resisted all the way. I feel like she's just going to keep resisting this book to a certain extent are just posts of moments of her resistance. Like that is the plot of the novel. And so she's like, for eight years, I didn't resist anything, right? Like in Helen's bed, I resisted this idea of heaven. And for eight years, I didn't resist anything. Let me tell you about my next moment of resistance. It's so interesting because it's actually how I write narrative is the way that I think about it is I always come up with what I call my clothesline, which is the Mm -hmm. main theme of whatever I'm going to be writing. And everything that I write has to hang on that clothesline. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter 
it can't be there. So in writing nonfiction, this is complicated because you know all of these things that you have to leave out. But I think that Bronte's doing her own version of this as she knows all the periods of her own life and of the character that she's building that don't hang on that clothesline of I resisted all the way. And I think you're absolutely right. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So this next part of the novel, which is like really a chapter almost entirely about the mail, right? She's like, so I posted in a newspaper that I was looking for a governess job and then I got the letter, but then other letters had to be sent and then other letters in response to the letter had to be sent. And only that, right? Like, I think it can read as so tedious and I am like on the edge of my seat, like it's a caper. Like, are they gonna rob the bank in time before the security guard notices, right? Like, is Mrs. Reed gonna write back in time so that Jane can let Mrs. Fairfax know that she accepts the job. Like she's resisting and this this carrot is right in front of her of this job at Mrs. Fairfax's house. And like, is it gonna happen? I find it so tense and I just, it just reminds me how slow things moved back then, right? Like now I find it stressful if I don't get an email out by five, right? Like I can't, Imagine the stress of this having to take six weeks. I think it does something else, too, though. And I have to admit, I don't quite feel the heist narrative (laughs) in this as much as you do. Though perhaps I did when I read it earlier on. I think it's amazing that you've read this book seven times now and you know exactly what's going to happen. And yet it can still (laughs) grip you like that. But I do think that it has this other purpose, which only occurred to me in this reading, which is, I think it's essentially a manual telling other women like Mm. Jane how to get free. Here's a template for a letter that you write. Here's where you go and what you ask for. Here's how you address the envelope. I mean, no one has ever instructed any of these women about how to apply for a job before. It's totally unknown. And Jane figures it out. And then she gives us this step-by-step direction where I feel like she's saying, listen, If you want to get free, if you want to work as a governess, if you want out of your situation, I'm going to show you exactly what to do. Follow this process and you too can at least be in a different form of servitude. 
Oh, I love that reading so much. And it's like so realistic too. She's like, look, the woman at the post office is going to give you side eye. You're going to get caught in the rain. You're going to have to go after your current job. It's not going to be easy, but this is how you do it. I love that reading and I'm never going to read this any other way for the rest of my life. But I think that this is also part of the power in these two chapters is from a really practical and social perspective. She is showing us the power of literature to change people's reality outside the book, right? The power of the social novel to reform policy and sanitation. The power of a book like this to help people see how to live, not just in the usual Victorian moral sense, but as a manual for some sort of secular freedom. And And I think that that's a really extraordinary element of this book. Lauren, I have to say, I find it very convenient that I think the very last part of the last chapter that we're talking about today is not about power at all, in my opinion, but all about desire, which is Bessie showing up. Bessie shows up at Lowood because she hears from Mrs. Reed. Mrs. Reed had to be written to, as I said. And so she hears from Mrs. Reed that Jane is maybe going to leave the area, the county. And Bessie just wants to see Jane and see how she turned out. And this desire, right, like gets her to do a big journey. We went on this journey with Jane eight years ago. It's long. And she like takes a kid with her and uses her day off and her money to just like go see how this kid ended up. And I just think it's so sweet. And we also learned that she named her daughter for Jane, that there was so much love there that we didn't even know about this lasting love. And I find that so powerful. Yeah. And Jane, right, like wants this kid to come sit on her knee and she wants to show Bessie that she did turn out to be a lady. And she's like, look, I painted that painting that is, you know, above the mantle, right? There's just so much love between them. And I think the thing that touches me the most is that even though it's Lowood and not Gateshead, Bessie is the one who sends Jane off to this new life. Yeah, it seems to me all about, again, the love that women have for each other and that, right, like Miss Temple isn't there to send Jane off and Helen isn't there to send Jane off. And so Bessie materializes to send Jane off. And Jane, of course, sends Helen off. Right. And that's another element of desire that I think we should unpack a little bit because it is yeah yeah it is not unerotic shall we say <laughs> so if we back up a little bit to Helen's death and the idea of these of these women or girls not letting each other go off into the unknown alone Jane's desire for it is so so passionate and so powerful, it almost reads like it's a bodice ripper, right? So she knows that Helen is lying in state, essentially, in Miss Temple's chambers, and she's forbidden to go there, but it's one of these, I'm going to run to you, baby moments. And she she sneaks out, and under cover of night, she speeds her way to Helen's bed, and she crawls into bed with her, and they're whispering to each other, and they're hugging each other, and they're kissing each other, and then Helen literally dies in her arms. I mean, if we were talking about people who were older, we would see this as like the most erotic, you know, we'd be talking about 
how the French call an orgasm a little death. Of course, this is not a little death. This is a big, big death. We'd be talking (laughs) about, you know, it is almost a scene out of Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story or any of these moments where this, this true love, these lovers that cannot be held apart by circumstance or mortality gather together and, and just kiss each other off into the great unknown. And it's like a serious, like getting into bed erotic last night on earth. And there's something about it, which obviously it's not that Helen is Jane's romantic ideal in any way, or that she has non-platonic feelings for her that we know of. But it is giving us a little cue about how Jane is going to feel, the, the depths of Jane's desires, how far she will go for these desires, and how they aren't just desires of independence and freedom. They're corporal desires. They're, they're desires of something that may be even more transcendent than that. I also noted that for the first time in chapter 10, we start seeing the word longing, which is a word that I love. And the longing that Bronte is describing, not even for a female friendship or for a male romantic relationship, but just for a bigger unknown life. So we felt Jane's longing so far, but now once this notion of moving on moving into her independence, that's when Bronte brings in the word longing. And I think that as much as this is a book that foregrounds these men, it does always come back to this longing for independence, this longing for selfhood, this longing for agency, this longing for experience. And I'm excited to be able to follow that forward. Okay, so where are we going to follow it, Lauren? What are you excited for in next week's chapters? We're doing chapters 11 and 12 next week. We're leaving Lowood. We are leaving Lowood and we are going to Thornfield where it is on, right? So this is this is the big pivot where it's like, okay, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. The mystery of Rochester is upon us. The mystery of Bertha is upon us. Things are going to get heavy and really become the book that we tend to think of in our culture when we think about the book Jane Eyre. Yeah. And we're going to get Mrs. Fairfax, Sophie, and Adele. We're going to get this like new trio of women who are going to love Jane and who Jane's going to love. And so I'm excited to pay more attention to that because I am no better than my training and my, you know, cultural upbringing. I love meeting Rochester, but I feel like I really want to pay attention to this warm welcome that she's going to get from the women at Thornfield. So I wanted to know more about why it is that we love to watch beautiful, pure children die. And so I turned to one of my favorite people in the world, who also happens to be the Susan Shellcross Swartz Professor of Christian Studies at Harvard Divinity School, Stephanie Paulsell. And here is some of that conversation. Okay, Stephanie, so we like... We have Beth March, we have Ava, we have Helen Burns. Why do we love to watch like beautiful, pure little girls die in literature? Why is this a trope? 
Well, it is a trope. And I think it has to do with our desire for children to be innocent. And obviously, Charlotte Bronte is playing with that. But I actually don't think Helen is a put Helen, I'm not sure I would put Helen with all of those other girls, because I think Helen is also resisting. She has an interior life that she can go into, and Jane watches her do it when they're punished, when that mean teacher is punishing Helen. She sees that Helen is going to a place where she's in her memory, she's somewhere else, she's not in the present moment. And, you know, when Jane gets punished and gets put on that pedestal and everybody is supposed to stare daggers at her and the girls are kind of giving her uplifting looks. And afterwards, Jane says, you're going to think I'm a terrible person. Helen says, there are only 80 people who saw that. There are millions of people in the world. Helen's got this sense of the vastness of the world. And that gives her, I think, a space of freedom to resist. And so I don't see Helen so much as like pure Christian, like when, even when she's dying, you know, Jane says, is there a heaven? Is there a place we're going to be? And Helen doesn't exactly say yes. You know, Helen says, I am sure there is a future state. I believe God is good. I can resign my immortal part to him without any misgiving. God is my father. God is my friend. I love him. I believe he loves me. She doesn't exactly say there's a heaven and we're going to get there. She says, I believe God loves me and I'm going to trust myself to that. So I don't think Helen makes all the kind of stereotypical moves that we think she might make as a pure dying child. What are those stereotypical moves usually? That's a good question because maybe it would be good to examine Beth March a little more closely and some of these other girls a little more closely and see if we are reading into them our understandings of innocence. I used to have a colleague named Bob Orsi who, during the, the uncovering of the child sex abuse scandal in Boston, wrote this great piece. He had gone into the archives and he'd read a lot of the reports on various priests and how they got moved around to various parishes and dioceses. And he came out and after reading that and said, I just think they don't see children as real. You know, children are are innocent or they're bad seed or whatever, but it's it's like this empty space where we adults can pour our fantasies in, our religious fantasies, sexual fantasies, insisting on innocence as the main characteristic of childhood robs children of some agency, I think is what Bob was saying. And I think one of the amazing things about this book is that Charlotte Bronte gives all these children their agency, even Helen. It's interesting because I definitely get very defensive of Beth March, that she is not just this innocent girl. And I think that there might be something about the fact that Louisa May Alcott and Charlotte Bronte are are basing these stories about their sisters who actually died. And there's some desire to, to make the move that you just made of like, you all use this as a trope. Dickens, Stowe, you use this as a trope. The Bible, right, like uses this as a trope of the death of innocence. But like these are real people. These are real girls that are dying because of poor sanitation and because – 
of injustice with Beth March, right? And so I love that these women are actually using a Victorian trope of the innocent child lying quietly dying in bed and being like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, they're in pain. Yeah, I think Helen is a lot more than good. She's smart and thoughtful and she has an inner life and she's able to kind of take herself out of the oppressive environment that she's in and go to a better place, you know, not heaven, her memories of the North of England where she grew up in the Brooks and, you know, her family. And yeah, I think she's, she's a really important figure in this book and a really important figure for Jane becoming who she is. Stephanie, thank you so much. It's always an honor and a pleasure. So great to talk to you. I'm loving this podcast. You've been listening to On Air. We are a small show, so thank you so much to those of you who support us on Patreon. It is only because of you that we are able to run. If you love the show, please leave us a review wherever it is that you are listening to us. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter. And we are mixed by Erica Wong. Our music is by Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to Deborah Lutz and Claudia Nelson, to Stephanie Paulsell for talking to us, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, and all of our patrons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who've jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com.